I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today I'm joined by podcast regular Kyle Nathan and Columbia Business School professor, creator of the Strokes Gain Statistic, and author of Every Shot Counts, Mark Brody. Mark, welcome on. Thanks for having me on this uh, Fried Egg Podcast, guys. Yeah, our pleasure. You know, we're trying something new here with Kyle. Uh, Kyle doing uh, making a, a three-man pod here. Well, Mark, I know you're really busy this time of year, so why don't we just kick it right off? Sure. Fire away. All right. Um, the question Andy gets and I get a lot from whether it's someone that's my you know, 20 handicap friend or scratch golfer friend is how to best explain strokes gain putting to a lay person. How would you do that? Okay. Well, strokes gain putting, I think, is... Uh is pretty straightforward. The, the The problem with counting putts is it doesn't take into account the distance of the putt. So a two putt from 60 feet is pretty good, and a two putt from three feet is pretty poor. So they both count as, as two putts, and the reason that they're very different performances is they start from different distances. So if you measure putting instead of by counting putts by relative to the tour average, then you get a much better measure of a putting performance. So from 33 feet, the average number of putts to hole out for a pro is two. So if you two putt from 33 feet, you're neither gaining nor losing, but a one putt will gain a stroke and a three putt will lose a stroke. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty, pretty straightforward, but you can also apply this to all other distances. So from eight feet, tour pros one putt half the time, and they two putt half the time, and they almost never three putt. So the average uh, strokes to hole out from eight feet is one and a half. So one putt's going to gain a half stroke, and a two putt's going to lose a half a stroke. So you really need to start thinking in terms of fractions of a stroke if you're a little bit better, a little shot is a little bit worse than, than tour average. But basically all strokes gain does is it measures putting performance relative to the tour average from a given location. And it then adds that up over the course of the round to see, in the case of putting, whether you're gaining or losing strokes on the green relative to the to the field. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. I would, I, how does uh, then the driving and approaching the green and around the green conversely work? It actually works in exactly the same way. So... Um, Instead of thinking about how many yards or how many feet am I away from the hole, if you think of how many strokes am I away from the hole. So let's say you're on a pros playing a typical par four, and the average strokes to hole out is four. So then a, an average drive will put the player three strokes away from the hole after the tee shot. So if the, if the player hits at 350 yards into the fairway, that's going to be a better than average drive and maybe only has... Uh, an average strokes to hole out of 2.7. So if he's gone from four away from the hole to 2.7 strokes away from the hole, he picked up 1.3 strokes, but he took 
one tee shot to do it. So he gained, it was 0.3 better than average. And if he hit a short shot into the rough, then maybe he only went from four strokes away from the hole until you know, maybe 3.2 strokes away from the hole. And, uh, you know, that would have lost two tenths of a stroke. So what strokes gain does is it measures shots, not in units of yards or feet, but in terms of strokes, which is ultimately what everybody cares about. Mm -hmm. And so it breaks down a score into how many strokes did you gain or lose on your drive, on your putting, on your short game shots, and it all adds up. You know, how did you start to think that the existing golf stats were bad? Were you a, you know, a golf fan that just thought, hey, this is, this is wrong, or were you just, you know, kind of, how did you come across this uh, inefficiency? So I um, was, wasn't looking to, to come up with a new golf stat. I'm an academic, and my, my research is applying math to solve business problems. And I thought, you know, the same kind of uh, tools and techniques I could apply to, you know, a sport that I loved, which was golf. And so one of the questions that I wanted to answer was, where do the 10 strokes come from that separate a 90 golfer from an 80 golfer? And I realized in order to answer that question that just knowing fairways, greens, and putts wasn't, wasn't going to be enough. And there wasn't good amateur data to, to analyze this, but what you really needed is shot-by-shot shot data. Where do shots start and where do they end? And so I developed a, a system to collect uh, shot data from, from amateurs and then later got access to the PGA Tours shot length data. And in order to answer that question, where are the shots that separate two amateurs or where are the shots that separate an amateur from a pro, I came up with, with strokes gained. And that allowed sort of a unified way uh, to, to measure the, the quality of a shot and where are these, you know, which parts of the game separate uh, players the most. And so... It, it wasn't so much that I was looking to, to create a, a new stat. It was I, I wanted to you know, answer a question like if you hit a drive 20 yards further, you have this magic club and you can be 20 yards longer off the tee, how much do you think your score is going to go down? And again, there's no way to, to answer that with traditional stats, but with uh, uh, shot, shot level data and strokes gain analysis, you can. Is is there a way for like the regular uh, weekend warrior to use strokes gained and like figure out a way to use it in their own game? Oh, absolutely. So there's a number of uh, apps out there, but I'll, I'll mention mine because I developed this one. It's called uh, Golf Metrics, and it's on uh, for iPhone and Androids, uh, Android phones, and. What you do is you record record your shots, and it's very easy to use. It's not GPS based, so um, you don't have it, it. It works for putting, and it works for off green shots. You just record um, how far away you are from the hole, and whether you're on you know the fairway, the rough, the sand, whether you're putting, and. At the end of the round, it'll give you a strokes gained analysis, not only in these four main categories, but in subcategories, so you get strokes gained on how well you're doing on short putts, medium putts, long putts, on different dis distance categories of approach shots, and uh, you know quite a few amateurs are using it. College teams are are using it, and you basically get the same uh, strokes gained analysis that 
uh, PGA Tour pros have access to. That's really cool. Um, do you find that there's a – would you say the difference between the, the stats on the PGA Tour that guys need to pay attention to and the stats that you know me or anybody that just plays casually would need to pay attention to are different? No, I think I think they're the same, and I think one of the advantages of amateurs recording their own strokes gain stats is many amateurs really don't uh, have a good sense of you know where they stack up to to other players or where is their biggest weakness. So if if you end up playing with the same group of 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 players every weekend, it's it's hard to measure yourself against you know a player that's you know five or ten strokes better and trying right. to figure out you know where where are your strengths and weaknesses. I've had a bunch of people that said, oh my putting is horrible, and they think it's horrible because you know they took 34 putts, but they're counting uh, two two times that they putted from 10 yards off the green. And a putt is not when you have your putter in the hand; it's a stroke on on the green. And so people have thought that they're worse putters than than they really are and then conversely there's there's people that think they're better in certain areas than they really are because it's 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 hard to remember all your shots and it's hard to add up fractional gains gains or losses uh, what it was is there anything that shocked you i know whenever i i go i, I go through my trading stats at work i'm always shocked by one thing like why am i trading this thing i lose money every time or something but is there anything that shocked you <laughs> Well, I think that the uh, importance of approach shots was was quite a surprise. And in hindsight, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise because that's the hardest thing for traditional stats to measure. And what what probably came came closest was greens and regulation. But greens and regulation is a mix of uh, driving and approach play performance, and it doesn't differentiate when you miss the green on the fringe versus missing the green in the sand or missing the green in the water. It doesn't give you extra credit if you hit a par five in, in two. Mm-hmm. So uh, greens and regulation is, is quite flawed. And so there was not really a good measure of approach play. And then uh, what was really surprising was, you know, how dominant Tiger Woods was in his approach shots. And he was so good that if if he had been an average driver of the ball, average short game, and average putter, just with his approach shots, he would have been inside the top 10 on the PGA Tour year after year. He was that dominant with his approach shots. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's, uh, is that your best Tiger stat? Oh, no, no, not not by a long shot. I think I think the best one um, is is this uh, this notion of, of a streak. And most people know Tiger's, you know, 142 make the cut streak. Uh, but I think it's it's even more impressive, the streak of, uh, of uh, consecutive rounds beating the field. And so what I mean by beating the field is if a player shoots 69 and the field average is 71.4, the player beat the field. And so an average player will beat the field half the time and so you can ask how many times in a row does a player has a player beat the field and uh, who who owns the record for the longest uh, beat the field streak. And when I asked a whole bunch of people uh, how long do they think the longest beat the field streak was, I would get numbers of 15, 20, 25, 30. And maybe the largest I ever heard was, you know, 35 or, or 40. Uh, 
but in fact, you know, Tiger Tiger Woods beat the field 89 times in a row in the uh, 1999-2000 time frame, which is just oh my gosh, just just mind-boggling and astounding, and whatever superlatives you can you can add there, um, I think it's better than uh, Joe DiMaggio's 56-game uh, hitting streak. Yeah. What's the second best? Uh, the second best, I believe, is uh, Marco Mira at uh, 32 or 33. Oh, so, that's uh, crazy. yeah, the the difference between number one and number two is also kind of a measure for how impressive uh, a streak was. So, Joe DiMaggio, right at 56. Well, Pete Rose or somebody else had like 42. Yeah, that's so, what I was gonna say. I thought you know, it was like little, 40. Yeah, something like that. So, there's a little bit of room, but the difference between uh, 33 and 89 is just, you know, it's almost three times longer than the the second longest streak, which is just otherworldly. That's insane. It's crazy. The, the, the amount of Tiger stats and the dominance is just unbelievable. And um, I'm curious, since you, you created, um, you know, this innovation, and I imagine, and I think there were a lot of people that, doubted these statistics because you were calling you know the conventional wisdom into question uh is there do you have any great stories about you know someone who just didn't get it and wouldn't believe that strokes gained was a a real thing um i don't have stories like that but i know there's there's probably lots of of players that just don't care about their stats Uh um so it's not so much that they disbelieve strokes gained as 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 much as they don't pay attention to stats at all. And uh, I think part of that stems from uh, the fact that traditional stats just were not informative. And if you grew up on fairways, greens, and putts, which are not very informative, then you can start discounting golf stats forever. Um, whereas I think the, the younger gen generation of, of players have have really embraced it and not just the younger players but 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 more so the the younger players uh, coaches have really embraced it I think fans and and writers so um, I, I wish I had a good story but I think those those people don't come to me to complain so that's probably why I don't hear those right. stories all right so I saw a tweet um, of yours from back in April where you talked about who you expected to have a good um, rookie season on the tour um, so how do you use your stats to kind of predict um, outcomes well the uh, the easiest thing to do is uh, is take a look at score because I mean you can look at putting and approach shots and other things but the first thing I think you want to look at is score, but but properly adjusted. And by properly adjusted, I mean you've got to not use raw scoring average when pros are playing at some easy course in the desert where the winning score is 29 under par and compare that to players at the U.S. Open where the winning score might be 3 under par. So you can't just look at score. You have to adjust for you know how difficult is the course and then even better is taking into account the the strength of the field. So uh, there's a number of ways to do it, but when I talk about total strokes gained, it's basically scoring average uh, relative to the field, adjusting for the difficulty of the course. And that's the first thing that I'd want to look at is um, 
total strokes gained. And when you uh, when you look at total total strokes gained for the season, you can see that the players that you know average one, one and a half, two, or two and a half strokes better in the field, they win more. the The better your total strokes gained, the more you win, the more top tens, the more money, the more world ranking points. And so that's sort of the the easiest way to to predict who's going to have a good rookie season. And and part of the reason it's tough for rookies is you need to compare play on different tours. And the the scoring average leader on the web.com tour, you know, the the top 10, they they shoot about two strokes lower than on the PGA tour. Mm-hmm. So you just can't look at look at scoring average and and it turns out that you need to adjust by around two strokes to compare fairly compare PGA tour scores with web.com tour scores because their, their courses are easier. Um, but when you, again, with, with total strokes gain in this proper comparison across tours, you can, you can, uh, make reasonably good predictions about, you know, uh, who might have a, a great rookie season or, uh, another article that I wrote was predicting who would rise in the official world golf rankings. And, um, that's a little bit different problem, but it has a similarity of people, you know, playing on all sorts of different tours and different parts of the world and different time periods, uh, different weeks. And, uh, some of the ones that, you know, that turned out to be good predictions, I thought, uh, Pat Perez would, would rise in the rankings. And when I made the prediction, he was 67th in the world. And, uh, 35 weeks later, he's 19th in the world. Um, I saw other, that his scrambling was unreal, wasn't it? Wasn't that the? Yeah, he is. He is leading leading the tour in uh, what I have is strokes gained scrambling. But uh, yeah, his wedge play and putting was just superior. And it's it's like a, a late career resurgence of uh, mm-hmm. of Pat Perez. And then, you know, somebody that you know had my eye on for a long, long time. Well, when he was outside the top 200, was John Rahm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andy's you know, favorite he, guy. Yeah, he. I mean, he had he had made this incredible rise, and then even when he was 25th in the world, I did the same analysis, and it predicted that he was still going to rise, and he's now number four in the world. So he's just uh, had this uh, incredible trajectory <laughs> in the last uh, year or two. When you looked at what he did as like a, you know, when he got his card um, as a, you know, playing on sponsors exemptions, his like. His strokes gained to you know point point to your your method was like overall was second to Jason Day who was number one in the world so yep. it, it seemed like it was a no brainer with the world rankings um, a lot of people always are complaining about the world rankings what do you think about the way they you know do their ranking and if you how would you implement a system to rank players across the world. Well, I think it's probably the the world. There's pretty universal agreement that the official world golf rankings are are flawed, and I don't think they're flawed so much at the top end and you know the top ten or twenty or, or thirty as much as from forty on on out. That there's a huge bias. Uh, against PGA Tour players, and I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a conscious thing. I think it just sort of uh, was this heuristic, made-up system that 
that evolved and there is never any sort of uh, sound mathematical analysis of, of how it's constructed. And it turns out that uh, if you if you play in some non-PGA Tour events, you know, you could win or come in the top five in, in, in some event that most people haven't heard of, and that would give you as many ranking points as coming in 10th in the Masters. It just makes, makes sort of uh, zero, uh, no, sense. zero sense. Um, and like I said, where, where it sort of matters is around top, around 50, because that will get you into majors and world golf championships and also uh, top 100 to get into the, the PGA championships. So it has sort of major, major repercussions. And there's basically a trade-off. If you play on the best tour, the PGA tour against the best competition, well, there's more money and, and all sorts of perks that go with that. But world ranking points is not one of them. You get penalized for playing on the PGA tour in terms of world ranking points. So another system that I think could probably be redefined with uh, statistics is the handicap system. Do you have any, um, that's a question we got from Graham Stevens. Do you have any idea how you would use data or stats to redefine the system? Yeah. I mean, you know, theoretically, it's not it's not a tough problem, but practically, it's it it's a lot harder than than you might imagine, and that's um, that's because just the lack of uh, what we take as as uh, obvious technology, having having access to computers, is just not available in all all parts of the world. So the USGA is working with the other golf associations to come up with a world. Uh, unified world handicapping system and that's got to be sort of simple enough that it can be used it can be used everywhere and so I think that you know there's a difference between coming up with a, a system that's reasonable reasonably accurate and easy to use versus you know the ideal which may be you know 10 or 20 percent better but is just much harder to understand and much harder to implement so for example if um you you would like if you were playing it around that if it's uh, a 30 mile an hour wind that and your, your score goes up by five shots then you know over your average and you post that score and your handicap goes up well it wasn't because you played bad it's because the conditions were tough right so how do you take that into account properly? Well, you either need a lot of people playing on the course of that day to figure out that the course conditions were tough, or you need weather reports or something, or what happens if the wind was blowing in the morning but not in the afternoon or vice versa. Uh, so those kind of things make it hard. And it's also hard when uh, you turn in a score and you say, you know, your handicap is going to go up or down, and then you wait till other people play, and then you've got to readjust that. So there's all sorts of different ways that you can do it. And I think actually that the, the current handicapping system, uh, while it certainly is, is flawed, is, is, is reasonable. I think it does a, a reasonably good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to ask a single handicapping system to make it fair when two people are playing against each other versus you have a hundred people playing and you're trying to give out prizes for, you know, winning or coming in the top 10. So, uh, large field events versus one-on-one stroke play versus match play. There's all sorts of, you know, stable for a competition. There's all sorts of different kinds of matches that, 
Uh, ideally, you'd want to have uh, different handicaps for, but that adds a whole layer of complexity. Um, um, in term, so I'm a big architecture fan, and um, I think you know fairway width is something I always am banging on a drum. And I'm curious yep. with strokes gained off, like especially off the tee, where say you have like a 90 yard wide fairway, and there's yep. a clear, very good angle and a very bad angle where, you know, from that bad angle, you're, you're essentially penalized like you would be in rough. How does, yep. how, how does, is there any way to account for that with the strokes gain method in its current form? Yeah. So I would sort of differentiate between the, uh, the idea behind strokes gain and, and the implementation. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is from every point on the course, you want to know what's the average strokes to hole out. And so you just said that if you're on, say, the right side of the fairway, you might as well be in the rough because you have such a tough angle. Well, what that's saying is that not all 180-yard approach shots from the fairway are equally difficult. And so what you'd really want to do is say, okay, if you've got a really bad angle over there, that the average strokes to hole out is a tenth or two-tenths greater because it's this tougher shot, it's a tougher angle. And so... The question is, can you estimate that from the data? And the answer is probably yes. You you absolutely could, um, but it just requires a little bit more work, and it's a little bit more complicated to explain. But the strokes gain method could could easily handle wide fairways versus narrow fairways and uphill putts versus downhill putts. And I think what would happen is that uh, you would get a more accurate picture, but uh, it would be an improvement on the margins that you might get, you know, 10% better results or something, but um, I, I, I think it's it is uh, certainly uh, certainly possible with within the framework of of strokes gained. Yeah, does that it, make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it'll be interesting with this year. Like Trinity Forest will be if it, if it is assuming it plays firm and fast, which is a big assumption with it being in Dallas in May. You know, you'll have a a course where. You know, the fairways are, you know, 70 yards wide and a, you know, very dictated off of angles versus, you know, a course that's traditional, like, you know, your tree lined rough or water lined courses. Um, so an, an interesting thing that one of our uh, listeners pointed out, Greg Adamo said he, he saw a paper of yours noted the decline in the penalty for rough uh, yep. from 2003 to 2010. Uh and, you know, what might that explain? You know, like, you know, what can we draw from that? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had a, a, a better story. But because of his uh, question, I went back and sort of updated that from uh, 2011 to 2017. And I would say the net result is there's been no real pattern. Um, so there, while there was a decline, it was significant. It was pretty small. So basically, the the penalty for hitting it into the rough, uh, missing the fairway in the rough, is about a quarter of a stroke. Uh, it's bigger than that if you include any kind of missed fairway, which would include hitting it into the woods or hitting it into the water or out of bounds, whatever. Then it's closer to uh, uh, a third of a stroke or, or a little bit more even. But if you just miss the fairway in the rough, the, the penalty is about a quarter of a stroke, and that's been fairly constant for 15 years, and it might vary 
up or down by about three hundredths of a stroke from one year to the next. Um, so one year to the next can be, you know, statistically significantly different. But in terms of any real message or punchline from that, I don't have any um, because it it that that trend that happened for a few years, you know, from two thousand and seven to two thousand and ten just just hasn't uh, continued. All right, let's do kind of a fun question here. If you were playing with a uh, two players great off the tee, one was a uh, one was a great putter, an average wedge player, the other was a great wedge player and an average putter, which would you rather play with? I would uh for for amateurs especially, I would uh take the better wedge player. And if you take a look at um a typical 90 golfer versus a typical 80 golfer, um, where the strokes, where those 10 strokes matter, about a little more than two come from a better uh, wedge play, and only about one and a half come from from better putting. So I think the edge there has got to go to the, to the better wedge game. Uh, when you get to pros, it's a little bit closer because pros have uh, less... You know, they hit more green, so they have less wedge shots, less opportunities to get up and down. So there it's it's uh, still maybe a slight advantage to the wedge player, but it's closer to it's uh, a pretty significant edge. I'd pick the better wedge player. There's a uh, there's a Sam Snead quote from years ago where he said if he had to do it all over again, I, I think it's Sam Snead, he would only practice drivers and shots inside 100 yards. So that's very anti what you're saying with the pro shots, and it's kind of funny. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we just don't have the data. It would be interesting, fascinating to to see how did, what kind of shots did, did Sam Snead hit. And it could be that he was so good with his irons that uh, he didn't need to practice that so much. Right. Uh, but, I, but I guarantee, because things... Um, have been reasonably stable for the last 15 years. It's just hard to imagine that if you go back uh, a few decades that uh, approach shots mattered less back then than right. they than they do now. Um, so he was he was probably you know better at those shots than he thought he was, or maybe he just didn't need to to practice as much. But um, uh, yeah, there's I think a, a all sorts of mis- misconceptions out there. And, and so many people will say, you know, the, the only thing you ought to practice is, uh, is getting up and down. Right. Now, yeah. You might need to spend more time because you have a lot of different shots off the green. Uh, you've got to understand different lies and different trajectories and different spins and, and all that. So you may obviously want to put more time into, into short game shots, but, uh, you know, some of the advice that, that I give to players is that you don't want to just practice one part of your game. You've got you've to split your practice time among all parts of the game and then sort of weigh things more toward your, your personal weakness as opposed to just some general advice. Do you believe in practicing your strength a lot? I've heard some people suggest that, hey, if you're a great driver of the golf ball, you have to practice that a lot to make yourself, you know, keep that high level at, uh, of that skill. So that's one that I would mostly disagree with. I think, uh, I've, I've looked at PGA tour players who've improved from one year to the next. And 
I thought it was obvious, but you never know what the data is going to say until you take a look at the data. So I looked at players who improved and tried to figure out where did their improvement come from. And I think in you know hindsight, it wasn't so surprising that the, the biggest uh, improvements came from where the players were the weakest. So if they were a weak driver and they improved, chances are the biggest part of that improvement came from better driving. And if they were a poor putter, chances are the biggest part of the improvement came from, from better putting. So I think uh, you know, the, the data shows, although not, you know, there is exceptions to all this, but as a general rule that um, maintaining your strengths and improving your weaknesses is a quicker way to, to lower your score than the other way around. It's, it's just hard if you're already uh, Roy McIlroy or Dustin Johnson to improve their driving. They're already sort of number one on, on tour, two or three in strokes gain driving. Yeah, they don't want to lose that, but there's not nearly as much upside as other parts of their game. Um, that, that makes sense. I, I usually see improvements when players make jumps. So with, uh, with 2018 right around the corner, um, Kyle and I always joke about, you know, a golf stock market where we could buy and sell players. And who would you be buying in 2018? Well, I think it's um, it's too easy to, to look at people that are in the top 10. If you want to say, you know, who might win a major, you've got to look at, you know, the top 10 or 15 or 20, 20 in the world. So I think it's a little bit more interesting to uh, to buy stock in, in overlooked players. Um, so somebody I'd put in that category might be Patrick Cantlay. That uh, um, you you probably know about him, but I'm not sure if the the average fan does. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think he's on a on an upward uh, trajectory and and uh, would be a good buy in the you know in buy low so in the in your in the golfer stock market. Yep. <laughs> Okay, here's an overrated, underrated that made me think um, about Dave Pell. So it's the question is from Sam Emmons, and it's overrated, underrated, putting inside 10 feet. And when you were talking about putting earlier, I thought about how I think in Pell's short, short game Bible, he basically says you have to hit it within, you have to chip it within 10 feet or it doesn't matter because you're not, basically if you're outside of 10 feet, you won't make the putt. Um so overrated, underrated, inside 10 feet. And what do you think about Pels' take? So I, I pretty much agree with that, um, that if you take a look at the best putters, where do they gain the strokes, the most strokes? And the best putters tend to gain more on putts inside of 10 feet than outside of 10 feet, um, or 10 to 20 feet or 20 to 30. So... Um, if if you had to allocate your your putting practice time, I would uh, for sure spend more time on putts inside of ten feet, and so I I sort of agree with that. And it's also true that when you're chipping from off the green, the the make percentage goes down so fast outside of ten feet that um, it is really important to get it not only inside ten feet but inside of five feet if 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 you can and. There, there's so little difference between the, the make percentage from 15 feet and 20 feet and 25 that those 10 feet from 15 to 25 matter so much less than 0 to 10 feet that, gotcha. right, uh, 
right? If you, if you get it inside of three feet, it's pretty much automatic. You get it inside of 10, you know, at 10 feet, it's about 40%. But once you get out to 20 feet, your make percentage is only 15% if you're a pro. So you just don't make make so many of those. So I, I kind of agree with, uh, uh, with, with those statements and agree with uh, uh, Dave Peltz on that. So we're you're gonna go underrated putting inside ten feet. We get underrated, yep, <laughs> underrated. Um, we we do this every podcast. So uh, Eli Thrasher asks, overrated, underrated, carrying four wedges. Oh, I I think I'm I'm neutral on that one because that's. Um, that that's sort of a, a, a personal decision. I, I look at you know how well do you perform from from different distances, and if uh, if you've got a gap in in your club somewhere in the bag, especially in in the, in the short shots, and uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell. I think that that's a really a, a player specific thing. So I'm I'm sort of neutral on that one. I imagine right. that has to do with like if if you're a good player at taking some off it too. Like if you're really good at like three quarter half wedges, you could you could do three wedges easier than somebody that might struggle doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not only that you want uh, to control your distance on you know twenty, forty, sixty, eighty, whatever hundred yard shots, but you also need to control your spin. And so it's not just the the loft, but you also have to worry about the uh, the bounce and other other characteristics of these clubs. And it very well could be that uh, uh, it's helpful to have to have four clubs uh, because it you you can then put a uh, the same kind of swing and maybe you, you do better that way. So it's not so much you know four clubs four clubs is better than three. The question is where are you losing it elsewhere in the bag, and that's what makes it a little bit harder to to answer. I really like this overrated, underrated from uh, Chad Williamson. Overrated, underrated, being below the hole. Um, I think that is rated about right. That um, it uh, it's it's definitely better to be to have an uphill putt than a downhill putt. So to give you an example, if you were on a, a steep green, so not not a flat, but a one of the you know steepest five percent of greens. Uh, the make percentage of uphill versus downhill putts is almost 20% different. Wow. So uh, that would be like an you know, eight-foot uphill putt, uh, you might make 54% and a downhill only 35%. So that's like a huge difference. Uh, to put that in perspective, across all greens, the average you know, make rate for an eight-footer is about 50%, and for a 12-foot putt, it's about 30%. So you get a a 20% difference when you go out four feet. Uh, so that's, so uphill downhill is, is pretty significant. I would say on steep greens, uh, not, not so much of course on, uh, on level or, or moderate greens. That's kind of an extreme case. That's surprising to me. I, d- I wouldn't think it would be that significant, but again, that's on the steepest greens out there. Uh, um, Augusta, People think of those those greens as the most difficult to putt in the world. Why? Because they're so fast and they have so much undulation. Um, but the the answer I think is more nuanced than that. That players actually sink more short putts at Augusta than at other courses 
because the greens are in such great condition and they roll so true and that they become tougher outside of 10 feet because of the speed and the undulations but inside of uh eight, eight or ten feet the uh the make percentage at augusta is actually higher than on a typical course huh. so um that I, I guess that makes sense i i don't know i always struggle with like those tight edge cups though i guess if you're playing well it, it's really nice but when you're not so confident that's where you struggle um so the the last overrated underrated we got is from George Burns and it's the decade system. So Scott Fawcett's decade system. Um, so I I like uh, I, I like the the decade system. I think that um, it's sort of based on on ideas in uh, uh, the Every Shot Counts book that you wanna you wanna take a look at shot patterns and put those together with uh, the features of the hole. Uh, so in general, I like it. I think uh, on the uh, overrated side of that is that it's it's basically geared toward elite players, meaning uh, tour pros and some of the very best college players and not so much for for weekend players. But I think the, the you know the general idea of practicing better course management and understanding where you can take risk and where you should, uh, be a little bit more conservative and how does the, uh, the pin location, uh, affect your approach shot decision and targets. I think, um, that that's, that's all great. And strategy is sort of an underrated, uh, part of golf. And, um, I think, uh, you know, the decade system is a good step forward. Nice. Um, so last question, I just kind of talking about like the future of golf stats. What do you foresee as the the next thing or, you know, what's the biggest flaw out there today? Um, so I think, you know, a couple things that um, I'm, I'm working on is sort of using shot data and strokes gained like an analysis to to measure course strategy so we're just talking about strategy so i think that's uh that, that's one thing that's that's really exciting and another thing that um i'm uh been working on for quite a while is measuring uh performance under pressure so strokes gain under pressure i think uh will be you know uh fun, fun to see how how those results uh come out yeah, that'll, that'll be exciting. I think uh, everybody, I bet you could bust a lot of myths about who performs great, um, you know, coming down the stretch. So Totally. Oh, you know what? I could ask you my theory um, that we've talked about. So myself, I'm kind of a uh, I'm shortish hitter. I, I wouldn't say short, but below average. But I'm a, I'm a pretty good long iron player. So mm -hmm. I argue that the longer the golf course is, the better it sets up for me because then everyone's hitting long irons in, basically, mm -hmm. versus the short courses, which you would think would be my advantage, are not necessarily my advantage. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, I would have to think about it more to come up with a more reasoned answer, but off the top of my head, I think that's true. And one analogy I'd make is somebody like Luke Donald, and I remember looking at mm -hmm. his stuff uh, – years ago and so what i did was i just looked at the player scoring average 
versus the field by whole distance. So as you know, as the hole gets longer, the strokes go up. Mm -hmm. And you would think, oh, well, maybe Luke Donald is going to excel at par threes, short par four. So say inside of 420 yards, mm -hmm. but maybe outside, maybe not so much. And that wasn't the case. He actually uh, continued to excel, and the spread actually widened the longer the hole was. And I think it's the effect that you you mentioned. You you have a hole that's longer, and fewer people are going to hit the green in two. Right. And so that makes that that puts uh, and and then he can you know out wedge and out putt them. Uh, so I think he you know he had this advantage that that, that uh, continued even through the longest hole. So I think that's consistent with, with your uh, suspicion. So I was I, I curious about that. It seemed like it made sense to me, but Andy and I have talked about it before. Yep. It's, um, it's uh, but um, Hey Mark, thanks so much for taking the time and coming on. Uh, I recommend all the, all the listeners out there to check out every shot counts. And then, uh, if you're really interested in getting strokes gained for your game, uh, your app, Golf Metrics, um, which is available in the App Store and uh, Android uh, Market, whatever they call it. So, Play Store. <laughs> Thanks, yep. Mark. That was really a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And uh, have, a, uh, have a great holiday season. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on, Andy and Kyle. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 